0: We're continuing this morning in the book of Acts, this morning with the latter portion of chapter 1. And we've emphasized that the book is first and foremost, this may be obvious, about the apostles. Right? So let me put provocatively what I'm getting at here when I say that. Um, Acts, like scripture in general, is not about us. It is about the works of the triune God in creation, in Israel, in redemption, and in glory. It is about the revelation of the triune God in Jesus Christ. It's about stuff that happens outside of us, out there, objectively, in the real world. And we are a part of the story in as much as we are baptized into that narrative. It's very important to get this right. So, Acts is about the apostles, and thus it's about their unique role in laying the foundation of the church. While we can profit from it in many ways, right? It is God's word. It is perpetually relevant. Still, still, it's not like a paradigm or a permanent pattern for the church for all ages. It's an account of a unique transitional, once-for-all apostolic function. So once we start to grasp this, we start to realize that a lot of of why-can't-we-be-like-the-church-in-the-book-of-Acts talk is misguided. Instruction from the apostles in the book of Acts? Yes. Imitation of the apostles in the book of Acts? Well, you know, in some ways, yes, but in some very important ways, no. Right? They are apostles. We are not. The book of Acts is not a manual of inspiration for your spiritual life. None of the Bible is that, in fact. And to read it that way is to distort the book. And so, what we're seeing uh, Luke lay out in chapter 1 before he gets to the event of Pentecost and the actual apostolic preaching of the apostles, is he's laying out the importance of this unique, unrepeatable college of men. And we'll see that again today. And it will turn out that our faith rests, literally, upon the uniqueness of this college, this apostolic college. So I'll make two points here. They're they're on the outline in your bulletin, Scripture and the 12. So first, Scripture. Peter stands up in the company of the 120, and he says this, The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, right? So we're at the heart of the gospel events here, the Lord's passion. Notice a few things about what Peter says of scripture here. First, first he says, scripture had to be fulfilled had to be there's a necessity to it because the god who breathes out breathes out scripture is sovereign and unrivaled and his purposes cannot be thwarted even in the case of evil events in the case of this crime Judas's wicked betrayal of the lord it had to come to pass Why? Because it was written beforehand in Holy Scripture. So right at the outset, we see that God ordains even wicked acts, even this most wicked of acts. He does so without being the author of sin. And this is part of the scandal and is part of the mystery of providence. Second notice, notice what Peter says, right? Scripture is something the Holy Spirit speaks through the mouth of David. It's the word of God in the language of men. And thus all scripture from Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed and profitable, we're told, for reproof and correction, for training, for equipping. Third, notice this. Jesus appointed 12 apostles. One defected. And the narrative is getting us back to the original number 12. That's the burden of this narrative, from 11 to 12. Because 12 is a symbolic number, referring to the renewed Israel of God with its 12 tribes. So Jesus says, for example, in Luke 22, He says that the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's all true. But Peter, if you notice, he does something slightly a little different here. He says, Scripture said this would happen. I'm summarizing what Peter says here. Scripture said this would happen. There would be a betrayer, and we should replace him in his office. So he's saying Scripture speaks in advance specifically about Judas. Specifically about Judas. Judas. Did you you hear Judas spoken of in that long Psalm 69 reading? Because that's who the psalm's about. At least a prominent player in that psalm is Judas. We'll come back to this, right? But scripture speaks specifically in advance about Judas. He was numbered, Peter says in verse 17. He was numbered among us or he was allotted his share in this ministry. So Judas was one of the privileged 12 to share in the apostolic ministry. And the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, speaks long beforehand concerning this one, concerning Judas. So what do we have here? Well, it's an inspired apostolic interpretation, an application to the current situation faced by the 11 and the gathered church. Almost none of us would, I think, naturally have taken the psalm texts that Peter is about to cite and apply them in the way that he applies them. You've probably noticed that, perhaps, when you read the New Testament and they quote the Old Testament. You might find yourself thinking, boy, I don't think I'd ever do that with that Old Testament text. That should be like a little alarm bell that says, maybe I'm not reading the Old Testament well. Like, maybe I don't have the apostolic mind. Right? When Psalm 69 is opened up, you should think, Judas. So what we have here is a unique window into the way the apostles looked at Scripture. That's what makes this passage so invaluable for us. They had a unique way of looking at it. It's a pre-modern way of looking at it, by the way. It's, it's not the way a lot of us instinctively look at it. And they would have learned this manner of interpretation from our Lord himself. Jesus taught them what we call hermeneutics, which is the principles of interpretation. Jesus taught them how to do this, starting with the two on the road to Emmaus, which was just before our gospel lesson, right? Where we're told this, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This goes back to Jesus. He is the goal of all of Old Testament scripture. Christ centered interpretation taught by Christ himself. Now that's a cool class on the road to Emmaus. And afterwards, the students he was teaching who recognized him in the breaking of the bread that after he vanished they said this did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures what makes your heart burn christ centered interpretation of the old testament that's what should make your heart burn seeing Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And later we're told, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Right, that's Luke's version of the Great Commission. And Jesus tells his disciples In the gospel, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send the Spirit, wait for the Spirit, you'll be clothed with power. And that's exactly where we are in the book of Acts right now. That's where we sit this morning. They have been taught by Scripture, that is by the Old Testament, because that's the only Scripture which existed at this time. And they were illumined. They had their minds open to understand Scripture by Christ himself. Christ, who is God of God, light of light, pours that light into our souls and minds so that we might see Christ, the light of the world, in Holy Scripture. This is the heart of Christian existence. Thus, it's important for us to see how the apostles read what Jesus calls the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And that's what Peter's about to do. Peter's about to quote the Psalm. But before he gets to his exposition of scripture, you get a little editorial note for Luke. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Luke's a physician, historian, right? He's very accurate. He tells you, I gathered eyewitness testimony about everything. I'm setting stuff out for you in an orderly way. I did my research. I write in an orderly way. I've tested these things, I've checked the original sources, right? And then he gives you the tragic history of the end of Judas. Right, who acquired a field and hung himself. And all this became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem how Judas died. And Luke says, look, I'm simply reporting what is public knowledge about Judas's fate. And then he returns to Peter's speech, which is what I want to focus on, in verse 20. He's already told us, remember, Luke's already told us that the scripture is to be viewed as a product of the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of David. And then he says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. And he cites Psalm 69, verse 25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. It's a psalm, as you heard, where the righteous psalmist seeks deliverance. and he seeks judgment upon his enemies. Peter reads it and says that text is about Judas. And So the basic move he's making is this. David, the righteous sufferer, points us to Christ, the Davidic Messiah, the righteous sufferer. Let it be done to Christ's enemies what David sought to have done to his enemies in the Psalms. That's the way Peter reads the psalm. And this means at crucial points, the apostles viewed Christ himself as the speaker in the psalms. That's really crucial to get. It's not just that the psalms point to Christ. It's that Christ himself is the figure speaking to us, the pre-incarnate Christ, in the psalms. Christ, through the Spirit, speaks through the mouth of David. David. Again, you might ask, well, how did they learn to read the Psalms this way? Well, they learned from Jesus. Right? Among the things that Jesus teaches us, this, that's a good question, right? If, if you were to ask us, what are the things Jesus Christ teaches us? Most of us would say, well, he teaches us how to how to be a good person, how to live the moral law, how to be disciples, how to show, how to love our neighbors. All true. True, but you know what a big thing that's missing is? He teaches us how to properly read the Old Testament. Jesus teaches the church how to properly read the Old Testament. Here's an example in John's Gospel, in the night he was betrayed, after he washes the disciples' feet, Jesus cites Psalm 41. Dealing with Absalom's rebellion against David, and he says this The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Right again, David is a type of Christ. Therefore, David's enemies are types, foreshadowings of Christ's enemies. So Jesus is doing this in the night he was betrayed. You know the way that you read scripture when you're about to be executed? That tells you that you're committed to that interpretive strategy. And this psalm, Psalm 69, that we heard read? Get this. It's used five times in the New Testament of Jesus Christ. Five times. The New Testament cites that long psalm that we read. So when you hear Psalm 69 next time, beloved, you're going to think messianic psalm. Christ is the speaker in it. It's about Judas too. That's that's what it means to have sat in the school of Jesus Christ. That's a surprising piece of information, is it not? That Psalm 69 is cited five times in the New Testament. One is right here in our text, of course, but in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleanses the temple, we're told his disciples remembered what was written Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's Psalm 69 9. And then again in the upper room on his last night, Jesus speaks of the hatred. That attends his ministry. And he says. What is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's Psalm 69 verse 4. In Romans 11. Where Jesus, where Paul is speaking of the temporary hardening of Israel. Paul says. Citing Psalm 69. At length. At length. Now you know this section of the book of Romans. It's an important section. Paul's trying to come to terms with the future of Israel. And he says, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And again, right? speaking of Christ in Romans 15, Says, it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Psalm 69 9. So it turns out, and this is surprising, right? It turns out that Psalm 69, probably on nobody's favorite list of Psalms, is a messianic psalm about Christ and his enemies. And Peter says the psalm speaks about Judas. This is what we call Christ centered interpretation. And it can be a tricky thing. You can do it badly. It's not finding Christ under every rock. It's not fanciful or artificial or undisciplined, but it does involve seeing patterns and types and shadows and promise and fulfillment. It does assume that there's an organic continuity between the Old Testament and Jesus Christ. It involves a careful tracing out of things to their consummation in Christ. It involves believing that Jesus Christ is the center of the purposes of God in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. This is what we mean when we say Christ is the center and the goal of all of Scripture. So Peter, who's been a student in the school of Christ, the Bible teacher, speaks of Judas's defection and Judas's death. And he says in our text, May his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Again, I know I might be beating a dead horse here, but Peter learned this interpretive strategy from the master. Let me give you another example. And again, the example comes from the heart of Jesus' earthly ministry. The high priestly prayer in John 17, again, in the night that he's betrayed. That's that holy conversation in John 17 that he has with the Father and we're granted the privilege of overhearing it. And the Son says to the Father in the midst of that prayer, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the Son of Perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Right, the whole cluster of scriptures which we have looked at, all fulfilled in the treachery of Jesus. The treachery of Judas against Jesus, excuse me. The treachery of Judas. Not one was lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. In the midst, in the teeth of his arrest and betrayal, in communion with his Father and the Spirit the son talks to them about Judas's role in Psalm 69. But Peter isn't done. Then he says, and let another his office take. That's from Psalm 109, which we didn't read. But it's a psalm with the same subject matter and the same themes as Psalm 69. And thus Peter sees it as applicable to the situation at hand. So, notice this as I close on this point. Scripture speaks in advance not only of the defection of Judas and the death of Judas, but it also addresses what the church is supposed to do about it. Namely, let another his office take. All of that divine direction is in the Psalms, Peter says. It's remarkable. So that's scripture. Let another his office take, and that brings me to the second point, which is the 12. So Peter has given us scriptural warrant, right? Psalm 109 says we have to replace Judas. Psalm 69 predicts his defection. Psalm 109 says we replace him. And he says this, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the time he was taken up from us. From the opening of his public ministry, the baptism at the hands of John, to the ascension. That's the time period necessary for accompanying the others if one wants to be considered an apostle. That's why there are no apostles today. I know there are churches that hang out signs that talk about the apostle so-and-so or this or that. There are no apostles today. If you go to a church that has apostles, go to another one. (laughs) There are no apostles. Here's the first criteria for being an apostle. You have to have been with the disciples from the baptism of John to the ascension. And by the way, that's the time period covered in the primitive, the earliest apostolic preaching, right? They preach about what happened, what Jesus did, from the baptism of John, through his earthly ministry, his miracles, his teaching, through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So obviously, one has to be conversant with that period. Later, Peter would say to a Gentile audience, we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So the Bible doesn't drop down out of heaven as a magical book, beloved, right? The the people who are writing the New Testament are eyewitnesses, plural, of these things. And And they're very concerned about the stuff that a good modern journalist would be concerned about, about the who. Who was doing these things? Jesus of Nazareth. What did he do? He went about doing good deeds, Right. When did he do them? Between the time of his baptism and his ascension. Where did he do them? He did them in the land of Galilee and in Judea and in Jerusalem. We know these things. We know who and what and when and where. That's why Peter is laboring this before he gets to the account of Pentecost. Without these witnesses, we would all be stumbling around in the dark. Making up our own religion. But even Paul would say in Acts 13, God raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee. In this sense, even Paul is not one of these apostles. He's not one of the 12 original apostles. Though he is an apostle, as he says, born out of time. So Peter says one of these men, who meet this criteria must become with us a witness to the resurrection we need need 12 Peter clearly thinks we have to have 12 surely because of the symbolic connection to the 12 tribes of Israel but also because of what scripture said about replacing Judas Peter thinks that the foundation of the church guarded with entrusting the apostolic tradition received from the Lord's mouth himself that that foundation has to number 12 and that those 12 must all be eyewitnesses not only of Jesus' resurrection but of his whole earthly life, his whole public ministry. Right? We are witnesses to the resurrection. And that resurrection becomes, as you'll see as we go through the book of Acts, Lord willing, that is the theme of the apostolic preaching. They preach the resurrection because the resurrection of the dead... Begun in Jesus is the hope of Israel. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, Peter's about to say at Pentecost. Right? This Jesus God raised up. You might say, well, that's a fantastic claim. And then Peter says, and of it we are all witnesses. That's what they're staking their lives on. Notice, notice the language. They're witnesses. They give testimony. These are legal words. This is covenant language. The apostles, and in this sense, only the apostles, are God's authorized, sworn-in, empowered witnesses in the cosmic courtroom, courtroom. There is no gospel without this college of apostolic men. None. The Christian story would just diffusedly sort of seep out into history and be lost. So they put forth two men, they pray, they cast lots, and Matthias is chosen, and the text says he is numbered with the 11, which gets us back to 12. So a couple of things here. First, and somebody mentioned this to me last week. First, this is not a mistake. Some have said they should not have done this. They should have waited for Paul. But there's no indication from Luke. There's no indication in the text that this is a case. That 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 is what's happened here. I mean, remember, Luke knows and has the highest regard for Paul. And if he felt Paul were slighted by this action, he'd have told us. And remember, he examined all the early church eyewitnesses. Nobody viewed this as a mistake. Second, notice this, after James, the son of Zebedee, is killed in Acts 12, he is not replaced. This is not a permanent ruling class. It's a once-for-all foundational ministry. There are no apostles in this sense today, or even after the first generation. Third thing to notice is lots were a perfectly lawful way to seek guidance at least on the occasion, you know, serious occasions in the Old Testament. But there's no evidence that the church ever appealed to them after the gift of the Spirit. And especially after the completion of the New Testament. So they're no longer needed. Fourth note this, that even in the casting of lots, the God who was sovereign over Judas' betrayal is sovereign over the lot, right? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Notice how they pray. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen. You have chosen. So the stage is set for the day of Pentecost. And we have to get this stage set. Matthias has replaced Judas, but the Spirit has not yet come to replace Judas. Jesus. So the community waits. So in closing, let me point out what I think are the two big lessons for us from this text. First, we learn that the apostolic foundation of the 12 for the renewed Israel of God is indispensable. Right? These unique witnesses lay the foundation of the church and we are built on them. And for us, that means we must repair to their testimony. You want to talk to the apostles, the apostolic college? Read your New Testament. We have to repair to them. We have to repair to their witness. We, and we have their witness now in the form of Scripture. Right? The whole endeavor, 500 and some years of Protestantism, of reformed christianity rests on the unique apostolic authority of these men which is not which cannot be challenged or rivaled by any other authority and thus leaves us with the unique supreme sole authority of scripture if you get clouded about this you're going to mix the apostolic witness with other things so that's the first thing we learn here the, the second thing is we learn that Christ is the key to the interpretation of all of Scripture. It is all about him. Not in the same way, not as direct in every passage to be sure. But from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus says, these things are about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. And so, if we desire to know him and to love him and to serve him, we have to have our minds illumined by the Spirit of the risen Christ to see, to embrace Him as He reveals Himself to us in all of Scripture. The prayer for illumination, beloved, is not a nicety in the the liturgy. It's a desperate prayer. Open my eyes, O Lord, to behold wonderful things from Thy law. I am a sojourner in the earth, David says in Psalm 119. Open my eyes to see your law. Right, there's a beautiful book of common prayer, short collect, little short prayer of illumination, which we use here a lot, that says we're asking God to help us read and mark and learn and inwardly digest the Holy Scripture because that is the apostolic witness of this unique, once-for-all foundational college. So we want to see Jesus in all of Scripture, even in unexpected places like Psalm 109 and Psalm 69. So we want to ask ourselves this question. How did the apostles read the Old Testament? And we want to pray, because it's not easy. It's not something we can just merely imitate. We have to learn it. We want to pray, Lord, let me read it the same way. And in this way, through the word, we are filled with the spirit and we wait. We wait for the Lord. And in our own way, derived from and dependent on these witnesses, we bear witness. We bear witness to the risen Christ. But we know this and we remember this. We are the superstructure. They are the foundation. This is the foundation on which we are built. And on which we stand in the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Amen. Amen.